this week's portion is Parshas Toldos. Now, we mentioned, just as a quick overview for Parshas Toldos, <coughs> I think that most of you might be familiar with the major event that happens in Parshas Toldos. The major event that happens in Parshas Toldos is the birth of Yaakov and Esav, the birth of Yitzchak and Rivka's two children. They're twins that are born at the same time. And soon after they come into this world, they part ways. And they go two different ways. Esav becomes the hunter, quote-unquote. He becomes the person that's the outside man. Yaakov, on the other hand, is the Ish Yoshev Ayaholim, the man that sits in the tent learning Torah day and night. And that's the picture that we have of Yaakov and Esav. As the story unfolds itself, we get a picture of Yaakov outsmarting Jacob, excuse me, Yaakov outsmarting Esav for the birthright of being a firstborn. How does he outsmart him? He gets him when he's hungry and tells him he's not going to give him anything to eat unless he sells his birthright. All of a sudden, the ish Yoshev Ayholim, the big tzaddik that sits in the tent, is conniving his way into getting the birthright out of Esav. Later on, to add to the picture, Rivka <coughs> comes over to Yaakov and says that I want you to dress up and make yourself appear like Esav. Go to your father that's half blind. Tell him that you're Esav, more or less so that the blessings that Yitzchak was planning to give Esav, he's going to give you. Here we get the same conniving kind of method of getting your way. And now it's not only Yaakov that's involved in it, but Rivka, one of our Imas, one of the Demetriacs, is also involved in it. And it's a very momentous occasion. Yaakov gets the brachas, and he walks out the door, and as he's walking out the door, Esav's walking in the door, a close call, a very dramatic scene. Then Esav comes in and puts the food down in front of his father and says, okay, go and eat, Pop, because I want your blessings. And Yitzhak is perturbed. I just gave the blessings. Weren't you? Wasn't the fellow that was just here, Esav? And then he says, well, the person that I blessed, he should be blessed. The story goes on that Esav raises the roof, and he starts yelling and screaming and crying. And he says, is it possible that you haven't left over some kind of a blessing for me? And then Yitzhak gives Esau some kind of a blessing also. But the blessing is more or less, the kind of blessing is when Jacob won't be worthy to what he was blessed with, so then you'll have it. It was that kind of a blessing. And that's the end of the story. Now there's other stories that are intertwined in this particular story. There's a whole story about the digging of wells in Abraham's times, and then they were stuffed up after he died, and then Yitzhak unstuffed them, he dug them up again, and they were stuffed again, and there was a fight in one well and two wells. Unfortunately, this evening we can't go through the, the deeper significance of the wells, but there is a tremendous significance in it. But those are the major two events that are occurring in the Parsha. The Parsha ends off, the portion of the week ends off with Rivka giving her son Yaakov a very healthy piece of advice. Pick yourself up and you better disappear because Esav is out for your head. And Yaakov begins a lifetime of tsaris. He begins a life of all kinds of running aways from Esav, then from Lavan. Then he gets involved with a tremendous tsara with his daughter Dina then another tsar on top of it of losing Yosef or thinking that he lost Yosef for 22 years and his life becomes a life of Yisurim. And the demarcation point when his life turns and becomes a life of Yisurim is at the end of this portion. After he's grabbed the birthright, grabbed the blessings and after both of those things happen he's in flight for the rest of his life. <clears throat> what I'd like to do this evening is to try to understand in some way exactly what's happening here. The most critical question, of course, is that we classically define our forefathers to be 
professionals or experts, each one of them in one particular characteristic. Avram's characteristic is chesed, charity, being a very good, gracious person, a home that's open from four sides. He fed people, he learned with people, he shared with people. That's Avram, Isha chesed. And he found his way to God through the charity that he did. Because he was such a good person, he was able to see God in creation as well. And he shared what he saw with other people. That's Avram, the Isha chesed. We explained that being the Isha chesed, there were certain problems that he had in his lifetime. There were certain crucial decisions that he had to make that did not fit that particular characteristic of chesed. For instance, bouncing out Yishmael. Yishmael lived in the house, and there came a time when Yishmael had to leave because he was bringing the whole street into the house and he was ruining his half-brother Yitzchak and it was very difficult for Avram to do that. Sarah, his wife, had to go ahead and do it. Sarah had to put her foot down and insist that Yishmael should leave. And Avram really went through ten of those kinds of tests. And we explained why such a person had to go through such tests that were opposite his character. And we're not going to review that this particular evening. But Avram is the Isha Chesed. He's the man of Chesed. All right, let's continue. Who is Yitzchak? All right, we never spoke about Yitzchak before. Yitzchak is all the way to the other extreme. Yitzchak is called the Ishagvura. He's the man of tremendous strength. What does that mean, strength? It doesn't mean Herculean strength. Strength means spiritual strength the strength to be able to resist certain impulses and inclinations, put everything in its right spot. Let me give you a very clear definition of the difference between Avram and Yitzchak in this regard. When it came time to the end of Abraham's life, he had to bless his children. It was customary to bless your children. And he had a problem. Yishmael was his son and Yitzchak was his son. So he explains the problem in the following way. There was, there was once a fellow that had a garden. And in the garden he had two trees. And the trees were intertwined in each other. One of the trees gave forth fruit that was luscious and edible. And the other tree gave forth fruits that were poisonous. Now, when the gardener came every Monday morning at 7 o'clock and woke up everybody on the block, he had a problem. If I'm going to turn over the soil over here so and do what's necessary to make this tree grow both trees will grow at the same time the tree of edible fruit and the tree of poisonous fruit if I will neglect this piece of soil because of the poisonous fruit the tree that has good fruits on it will also die so he's in a dilemma he doesn't know what to do so the gardener says I'm gonna do my job and let the person that owns the garden worry about what he's going to do with the fruit. So the Medrash says that was the same kind of dilemma that Abraham found himself in at the end of his lifetime. Am I to bless my children, quote-unquote? So the blessings will go to both, even though one is not worthy. Should I rather not get into the issue of blessing my children altogether? So then why should Yitzhak lose out? To bless one with me out, the other didn't seem to be logical. They're both my children. And it was a point where he couldn't decide. So what he said in the language of the Medrash is, listen, I lived 175 years. I did my job. Let God resolve this issue. And he left the world without blessing either one of the children. And immediately after his death, God came and blessed Yitzchak. Now, so when it came to the issue of a blessing, Abraham was not able to make the decision. On the other hand, when Yitzchak is at the end of his lifetime and he has to make a decision who has to be blessed, he makes the decision, and a difficult decision, but he's 100% sure. So sure that Rivka didn't even bother explaining to Yaakov, to Yitzchak, that y Yaakov should get the blessing. There was no convincing Yitzchak that the blessing was supposed to go to the younger of the two children. It, there was no point in trying to do that convincing. There are various reasons why, but it wouldn't have gotten her anywhere. So here we have a dramatic difference. Where does the difference lie? Avram is the Isha Chesed. And being the Isha Chesed, he finds it difficult to make these distinctions. They're very difficult distinctions to make. They're hard distinctions to make. Yitzchak, on the other hand, is the Ishagvura. 
He's the man of law and order. He's the man of justice. I have two children. He's the oldest son. I see certain qualities in him that deserve, are deserving of blessing. He gets it. There's another son here, and he's going to be pushed away, and maybe he's a little bit better in this aspect. I know what justice is. And it was only a photocopy of what his whole life was. This is what he demanded of himself as well in his life. So he's the Ishagvura. Now, what's Yaakov? What's Yaakov? Now, we're going to talk more about that aspect of Gvura. But what is Yaakov? Yaakov is classified, and don't laugh, Yaakov is classified as the Ishha Emes, the man of truth, honesty. That's Yaakov. And the way the commentaries explain this is that he was a synthesis of Chesed and of Gvura. He was a synthesis both of the charitable and merciful human being and of the justice at the same time. He was a, a pleasant blend of both characteristics together. Abraham had one with le teachings of the other. Yitzhak had one with teachings of the other. But they were basically, one was an Ish HaChesed, a man of charity, and the other one was an Ish HaGvura. That's what their real forte was. Yaakov was neither. Yaakov was a synthesis of both together. When you have both of them together, what evolves is a man of truth in Isha Emes. Either one in extreme is not truthful. When you have a perfect synthesis between the mercy and the gvur at the same time, then you have an Isha Emes. Now, so we say that Yaakov is the Isha Emes. So now we get our first introduction to the Isha Emes. He waits till the ace of is hungry and he gyps him out of his birthright. And then when his father's too blind to make a distinction between him and his brother, he gyps his brother out of, out of the brachas. And that is the Isha Emes, the man of truth. Now that's most probably the most critical question that this particular parasha presents. On a different level, the question can be asked in a different format entirely. Everything that happened was ordained and destined to happen. Now this is not like people, you know, things go wrong and they say, well, it was Bashert and that's the end of it. Everything that happened we are told in the Medrash, was destined to happen. For instance, in regard to the, buy, the buying of the birthright from his brother Esav, the language of the Medrash is, that God was waiting for the hour to come, that because the birthright belonged to Yaakov and not to Esav. Clearly written, that what happened was an act by which Yaakov was straightening out a destiny that was his. So there seems to be some kind of a rationalization or a justification for what he did. When it comes to stealing the blessings away from his brother, who was the one that instigated that whole plot? Right? Who was the one? Rivka did. Where did Rivka get the idea to fool her, blind her husband into blessing the other son? It was Ruach HaKodesh. There was an inspiration that came from heaven, which was one level under the level of prophecy, which had told her that this is what she has to do. Now, to get the idea and the picture that Yaakov is the quiet guy that sits in the back of the study hall and he's figuring out all kinds of schemes and plots, and that this portion of the week just tells us of a number of his schemes and plots, is an impression that I'm trying to create, but it's a false impression. The truth of the matter is that when Jacob went in in his costume to receive the blessings, it says that he was falling apart. He couldn't even walk to the door because this ran completely contrary to what his characteristic of truth was. The language that the Chazal use is that he was an anus kafufubocha, he felt completely forced into it, completely shattered. His image was shattered, kafuf uboche, and he was crying like a little baby. And the Gemara says that if it wasn't for the fact that there were two malachim, that there were two angels, each holding him on this one on each side and supporting him, he would have collapsed before he ever walked into the room. So this was a very, very difficult thing for Yaakov to have to do which leads to the other kind of a question that I spoke of before. Why, if it was destined that Jacob should have the blessings, did they have to come in such a dishonest way? 
In other words, taking the blame off and saying that it wasn't a scheme or a plot on his part, but that there was some hidden destiny that he was supposed to get the blessings. Why did they have to come to him in such a crooked way, a very, very crooked way? And to confuse the issue just one bit more, I'm perfect at that, to confuse the issue a little bit more, there's a very mysterious medrash. There's a very mysterious source that describes the crying of Asaph. The Medrash says the following thing. The Medrash says that when Asaph cried, he let three tears. Okay? He was a real rough, tough man. And to see a rough, tough man fall apart and start crying was quite a thing. So the Medrash has it that he was able to bring forth three tears. And the Medrash says, Achas miyaminai, the achas mismailai, one went down his right cheek, one went down his left cheek. We count those tears. He wasn't such a tearful kind of person. And one tear didn't really leave his eyes. Right? Now, so the Medrash explains, and the Medrash says that for the three tears that Asaph cried for the blessings that he was quote-unquote gypped out of, yeah, for those three tears, we had to scream and cry by the decree of Haman in the Purim story. In other words, God listened to those tears, they registered, and God remembers those tears, and God paid the Jew back for those tears in the Haman story, when Haman made the decree to annihilate the Jewish people. And it says over there, And over there it also says that the Jew cried out a tremendous cry. The words are identical to the crying of Asaph here. So the Medrash says that this was a retribution for the tears that Asaph cried for what Yaakov had done. Now this is very, very difficult to understand. And the Medrash goes on. The Medrash goes on and says that all the Tsaris of Gullus, all the problems that we've had through all of history are because of those tears of Asaph. The Medrash goes on and the Medrash says, the Medrash says that if the third tear would have left his cheek, then we would be in Gullus forever. There's a language like that in the Medrash also. And all of this is very, very difficult to understand because we know that when, Jay, when Isaac did find out about the blessings and he found out about this whole costume business, the first thing that Isaac said was, here. let the fellow that walked by here before be blessed. And the reason why he said that was because he saw the destiny the Chazal say that when Jacob walked in for the blessing, he smelled Gan Eden, he smelled the world to come. When Asaph walked in, he didn't smell the world to come, he spell, spell, smelled Gehenim. And he obviously saw that he had made a mistake, and he said, thank God that it worked out the right way. So Isaac himself, who gave the blessing, agreed in the end that it worked out the proper way. Not, nevertheless, the Medrash says that for the tears of Asaph, we suffer in Gullus. We suffer the Gullus. Now, how do we reconcile that kind of a contradiction? It's a very difficult problem. <coughs> now, there are various other problems that I would just like to quickly go over, and then we'll give a basic definition of everything that's happening here. There are just some kinds of questions that some of us might ask. And some of them are very good questions. They seem to be silly questions, but really they're important questions. Let's go over some of them. Rivka had two children, Yaakov and Asaph, very different kinds of kids, very different. And she had those two children in what's called a multiple birth. She had them as twins. We know that because she had them as twins and they were so diametrically opposed before they ever came out into the world by their very nature, we are told at the beginning of Parshas told us that she suffered a very difficult pregnancy. Such a difficult pregnancy that she went to find out what in the world was going on. Yeah, what in the world was going on? She went by houses of holy worship, all of a sudden there was some kind of a jump, somebody wanted to get out of there, she wasn't sure who it was, and then she went by a house where it wasn't holy worship and somebody wanted to get out there also. 
According to some commentaries, she thought that she had one child and that the child was mixed up. <laughs> and that really confused her. And she was very disturbed about that. So she went and she asked, and there she was told, not by an obstetrician, but by the Rosh Yeshiva, by the, the scholar in the Yeshiva, that she has two children. Two children. So we are not dealing with one crazy mixed up kid. We're dealing with two children of different characteristics. But the question that comes up is, why did she have to go through such pain? Why couldn't those two children be born to Rivka one after the other? Why did they have to be together to create such conflict? Now, if you think that this is a petty Bubba kind of question, okay, there is a certain amount of damage that was created by the fact that they were born together. The Medrash tells us that Rivka said, Lama ze Who needs pregnancy altogether if I have to go through such pain? This is what Rivka said. Now, the commentaries go into this at length. We know that Rivka couldn't have children for 20 years. Here she's having children. The pain must have been very, very severe. So it's not so simple. If we have some sensitivities, we'll see that it's not so simple. But more than that, that comment cost Rivka 10 children. The Medrash says that Rivka said, Lama What do I need this for? The word zeh is a zayin and a hay. It adds up to 12. And she said, Lama What do I need this for? So HaKadosh Baruch said, Okay, you won't have it. And instead of having 12 children, she had, ten, she had two. Right? So this is a very severe kind of judgment that was apropos for the level of tzitkas, of the righteousness of Rivka, which is difficult to talk about, but obviously there was something very, very hard to go through and to live through here. What was it necessary for? What was the whole thing necessary for? And another critical question, and then we'll try to develop some ideas here, is that when we discuss the birth of Yaakov and Esav, all of a sudden Rivka has to come with a yichas brith. All of a sudden, we have to get the yichas of everybody. We have to know who Avram is. We have to know who Yitzhak is. We have to know that Yitzhak was not born from an illicit relationship between Sarah and Avimelech. All of a sudden, we're concerned that maybe Yitzhak came from Avimelech. Over here, that's where we're concerned about, about it. Yeah? And then we get into a very proud heritage that Rivka came from the house of Psuel and Lavan. Now, if you want to talk about their stock and their pedigree, so that should have been talked about at the time of the Shidduch. Twenty years later, when there are two children in the world, to start giving a description of the yichis of the father and mother doesn't seem to have any kind of significance. Why, at the beginning of this parasha, do we all of a sudden start talking about the yichis of two people that have brought twins into the world? <coughs> Okay, why, and now we're getting to, qu to answers already. Why is it, why is it that, <coughs> why is it that Yitzhak wanted to bless Esav? Why? Esav was older by about two minutes or less. Esav to assume that Yitzhak didn't know who Esav was is ridiculous. They're parents with less intelligence that know exactly who their children are. Why? Two minutes made the whole difference. All the blessings. Now, mind you, the way it came out was that when Yaakov got the blessings, Esav came complaining, you didn't leave me anything. And in truth, nothing was left for him. Which meant that if it would have worked out the way, if it would have worked out the way that Esav had planned it to work out, he would have gotten the blessings and, and Jacob would have gotten zero. Now, even if you like Esav because he's born a minute before Yaakov, but you could leave something for Yaakov, no? But the way it would have worked out, if it wouldn't have been for the whole costume act, Yaakov would have gotten nothing. How do we understand that? Again, this goes back to something that we were talking about last week. For some reason, Rivka had a better understanding of the situation than Yitzhak did. Rivka knew who was supposed to get and who was not. 
So you'll dismiss this, or at least the men in this group will dismiss this, and say, well, Rivka knew better because Ruach HaKodesh came to her and told her. That's why she knew, but not because she was smarter. But that's not an answer, because the same Ruach HaKodesh that could have come to Rivka could have come to Yitzchak. So the inspiration that came to Rivka did not come to Yitzchak. Why not? What's happening here? There are two ways. There are two ways of explaining. There are two ways of explaining this particular decision of Yitzchak, and I'd like to explain it on both levels. Let's start from the first level. Children are different. Children are different. That's a fact. Every child is different. Parents that compare their children and expect from one child the same as they expect from another child are in for a lot of trouble. That's a fact. Every child is different. Now, Avram and Yitzchak, and for that matter Yaakov, each one of them recognized that they had a unique mission in building some of the essential foundations of what would become Knesset Yisrael, which would become the composite of the Jewish people, the foundations of the Jewish people. They recognized this mission. Avram recognized this particular mission, and he brought out his greatest talent of chesed, and it becomes a pillar stone of Yiddishkeit, chesed. Yitzchak recognized his part in the chain of building the foundations, and he introduced the gevura, which meant self-control, spiritual strength and stamina, courage and consistency, which are also necessary elements and pillars to build Knesset Yisrael. To have a nation that's on a spiritual high one day and is flying off in a different direction another day, you don't get a viable and wholesome nation. You need the Ishag as well. Now, at the, that particular point when we have Avram and we have Yitzhak, and now Yaakov. Yitzhak has two children, Yaakov and Esav. They were both, and I know that this is going to sound like something very odd, they were both supposed to be foundations of Knesset Yisrael. Both of them. Now, we envision Esav as a wicked fellow, a bum, the black sheep, had real, no, no real place in the house to begin with. That's how we imagine Esav. The truth of the matter is that that's completely incorrect. The truth of the matter is that, first of all, Yitzchak and Rivka were supposed to have 12 children, which means that the 12 tribes that came out of Yaakov were really supposed to come out of Yitzchak and Rivka. The 12 tribes were Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehudi, Yisachar, Zul, and in the last two were Yaakov and Esav. They were two tribes. That's what they were supposed to be. Now, after Rivka, we'll explain this. After Rivka said, Lama that I can't stand this pregnancy, and she lost the privilege of having 12 children, Nevertheless, the mission of 12 Shvatim, of 12 tribes, to be the cornerstones of Knesset Yisrael was not something that was ruined. And it was not supposed to come just from Yaakov. Six tribes were supposed to come from Yaakov, and six tribes were supposed to come from Esav. There are many, many Medrashim that refer to this. Now, how do we understand this? Let's explain it on two levels. The first level that we can explain it on is, on a simple level, we know that of the 12 tribes, we have Yisachar and Zvulun. We have Yisachar and Zvulun. Yisachar and Zvulun were two tribes. One of them was primarily interested in business and was very successful at port. That was Zvulun. Yisachar were the big Talmidei Chacham, and they were the big scholars kept to the books, uncovered all the different secrets of the Torah, and they worked in a beautiful partnership. Zvulun gave a certain amount of support and sustenance. Yisachar learnt, and that was a beautiful partnership. Each one benefited from the other, and together they get an equal olam haba. Together they get the same olam haba, because they helped each other. Yisachar and Zvulun. 
Now, if you go into the characteristics of Yisachar and Zvulun, their very characteristics lent, to, lent them to what they were doing. Zvulun was just a very good businessman. And Yisachar was a very good bookworm. That was the fact. That's the way that two children are different. This one's more attuned to very heavy and consistent and unabated learning. And this one is more into dabbling in business and doing well at it, not only dabbling at it. So they recognized each other's talents and contributed to each other. That's a partnership. Now what Yitzhak envisioned was he knew good and well that Yaakov was the guy that was going to have his nose in the books. And he knew that Asa was the guy that was going to love the outdoors. He would have had a ball in California. He knew that. But knowing that didn't, didn't dismiss the validity of any one of his two children. He, what he was hoping for was that Asaph was you, would use his outside talents and use them in a way that he could throw them into a good partnership to Yaakov. And Yaakov would then be able to assist Asaph in those areas that Asaph was weak in. And what he was hoping for was a partnership. And between the two of them, there would be a Knesset Yisrael. You need the outside man, you need the blessings. He doesn't need all the, the blessings to protect him from this event and that event and that his crops shouldn't go bad and his business deals shouldn't go sour and the seasons shouldn't get all messed up. Asaph was the one that needed that. So he wanted to give Asaph all the Gashmiya blessings a real Rebbe's kind of blessing to the businessman, and with the understanding that being that the inspiration and the blessing came from the father Yitzchak, he would have the sense to use it in a proper partnership. That was what the kavana was. That was what the intention was. Now, I'm saying this on a very simple level. We'll see soon that it goes deeper than that. Okay. That was Yitzchak. Now, Yitzhak was prone to make that kind of decision because he was the Ishagvura, because Yitzhak was the man of tremendous self-control and with a feeling for law, order, and justice. The immediate feeling that came to Yitzhak was, this is a man that has a tremendous amount of desire and need. But desire and need doesn't automatically cancel out a person from being a wholesome human being. Take your desires, take your needs, and create them and let them loose in an environment that they're productive. So Yitzchak wasn't shaken or scared of the fact that he saw this Asav with potentials of becoming what he became. Good. So you have desires, you have needs. Very good. All you have to know is that you have to take them and direct them properly, and then you can come out even stronger. I know my, my mother-in-law, when my children come to visit, and my co- when we come to visit, and my mother-in-law is a little bit, she's not such a youngster anymore, and we have quite a group of kids, yeah, and they're lively kids, and we always feel that when we come that we're giving her a big splitting headache because they, you know, they fly all around, crawl the walls, swing from the chandeliers, they have a real good time. And for two people that are not used to all this noise, it's, we feel, you know, we feel very out of place that we've brought such an earthquake into their home. <laughs> so anyway, the way my mother-in-law always does it, she's a tzaddikus in any case, that's besides the point. But what she always says is that experience has it that when the kids were wild and devilish when they were young, they grew up to be very t- big talmidei chachamim. Because there were potentials there, you know, and you got the little quiet kid that just sits in the corner all day long and doesn't harm a fly. You begin to wonder if there's anything in the upper story. So she said, no, no. The wildest kids usually what grew up to be the, the ones that were, you know, had the most kishra and they had the most capabilities. All right. Some kind of a consolation. But anyway, <laughs> somewhat. Maybe for me, but not for my wife. But anyway... <laughs> Anyway, so that was the basic idea. So Yitzhak didn't chap any hispilus. Yitzhak didn't, he didn't walk away from this all concerned and everything. He saw tremendous potentials in what Esav was. Now, 
On the other hand, Rivka knew that with all the potentials and desires that Esav had, he had already developed some habits, quote-unquote. He had already developed certain leanings that made it impossible for him to receive more blessing that he wouldn't warp the meaning of the blessing. And Rivka recognized that what Esav would do with all these blessings of this world would be to use them for self-gratification. She saw that the partnership would never happen. He'd embezzle it and disappear. That's what Rivka saw. Now, here we come to a critical question. Here we come to a critical question. Was the costume act that Yaakov went through on his mother's advice a truthful act or an untruthful act? In the simple Webster definition or the American history definition, did George Washington cut down the apple tree or did he not cut down the apple tree? It was cherry tree. Sorry, cherry tree. There's a lie right there. Cherry tree. Yeah. He was doing something that was dishonest. No question about it. He made him put himself into a costume and he made himself appear to be Asaph. Did he say he was Asaph or not? No. It was a white lie, quote unquote. Yeah. He didn't say exactly that he was, but he definitely gave the impression of being somebody that he wasn't. But here we come to a very critical definition. A very critical definition. Let's think for one moment what would have happened if Yaakov would have said to Rivka, I'm the Isha Emeth. I'm the man of honesty. I'm never going to fool a soul. And Asaph would have gotten the blessings. And Asaph would have taken the blessings and he would have built a world of self-gratification. What would have happened? What would have happened, other than Yaakov being in the ditch and not having anything, what would have happened would have been that there would have been a philosophy built that this world onto itself is a world also. That all the blessings that God sends down into this world were sent down in their own right. If you want to be gracious enough of throwing a bone to the scholar, fine. But when the blessings were sent down, they weren't sent down for that. They were sent down for a person to make whoopee and have a good time and enjoy himself and it's a world all to itself. That's, what it, that's the notion that would have been created because he would have been taking spiritual blessings, taking them, yes, spiritual blessings, and taking them and using them for his own self-gratification. And what a world he would have been able to build with those blessings. The only thing is that he would have been the father of a tremendously false belief. Asaph would have become an Av, he would have become a father responsible for a terrible misconception that Olam Hazeh is a world unto itself. If you want to go and you want to be a fanatic about it and use part of it for something else, go ahead. But it's a world for itself. And who would have been responsible for it? Asaph with what he did with the, the blessings that his father gave him. Now, that's true or false. Is that a true value or a false value? That would have been a tremendously false value. So what did Yaakov have to do? Yaakov could have made, his decision was as follows. Should I stick to the George Washington definition of a lie and refuse to get into the costume? So I would be a lovely person. I could boast that I never got into a costume. But eventually, a tremendously false belief would evolve from the blessings being in the hands of Asaph. So it would be the honesty of a moment and the quote-unquote determination of not giving any other kind of an experience for the moment and in it to sacrifice a basic truth for the rest of the world for the rest of time. The other way that Yaakov could have thought is that a truth is not always measured by the moment of true or false, but truth has to take into the picture the the down-the-road effects 
of what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say. Sometimes something can be very truthful, but where it's said, it can create more damage than good. Sometimes avoiding expressing the truth or trying to circumvent it can ultimately create a greater truth sometimes. Most of us do not have the right capability or sense to be able to make those major decisions. But Yaakov had to make that decision. Was he going to go through an action that temporarily looked like a false move, but ultimately to preserve a true philosophy? Or was he going to let it ride and it would work out the opposite way? This is what Yaakov had to decide. Rav Desla says very clearly that the definition of truth is to put everything in its proper place and proper perspective. And that doesn't mean for this particular moment. It means that you have to be able to define it in the effects that it's going to have. Sometimes something in its restricted area can be truthful. But when you take in the effect that it might have and the way it might work, it might work out to be a disaster. And then the act is not a truthful act. It's not an honest act because of the end. That is so. So the way Rav Desla explains it is that quite to the contrary, Yaakov was not working against his characteristic. He, wasn't work, he was working against his characteristic on a superficial level of what his characteristic was. But in a deeper level of what his characteristic was, he was making a deeper definition of what Emes is. In other words, on the level, it ran against his grain. But his whole, the whole episode that he had to go through wasn't, let's forget about Emes for the time being. Let's forget about it, because this has nothing to do with Emes. No, it was the deeper Emes that he was trying to develop over here. So even though on the outside it looks like it wasn't something that was truthful, but underneath, it was a commitment to the deeper results of a person's actions, of seeing it in its total perspective. So if anything, Yaakov was developing a deeper meaning of what Emes is, of what truth is. And it was with this that he became worthy of the blessings that came afterwards. When he can understand that, not, that something is not necessarily interpreted by the moment, but that you have to take in all the effects who it will affect and how it will affect and what will be the result down the line, that's when he developed it and he became worthy of the blessings. Now, <clears throat> this is one way, this is one particular way that this episode is defined. In other words, Yaakov had to come to the realization of the deeper values of Emes he had to forego the image that he was going through here, that it didn't look, didn't look like an honest action, to be committed to the deeper emiss that was involved. Now, because of this, first of all, we have a human being developing a characteristic that gave, made him worthy of the blessing. But on the other hand, there was something else that was also very significant. The action only remains an honest action provided that we live up to using the blessings the right way. The whole justification of Jacob taking those blessings was because if they'll land up in the hands of Asaph, if they'll land up in his hands, he's going to build all kinds of worlds that are untrue to the purpose of why the world was created. Therefore, it's justified for me to go through this Appear, uh, an appearance of something that was false to preserve the deeper truth that would never evolve if it would be in the hands of Asaph. That's fine. And as long as we can, we can, uh, we can attest to that value, gambarachir, let him be blessed and let him have his blessings. But when the day comes that we take those blessings and we use them in the way that Asaph would have used them, so then what Yaakov did was a dirty trick. And then the tears of Asaph do mean something. In other words, the tears of Asaph don't mean anything 
if the action is an honest action, if we can prove that the values and truths of Olam Hazeh can only pre- be preserved in the hands of Jacob and not in the hands of Esau, so then it's an honest action. Esau is blubbering over there, let him blubber. He wouldn't do anything good with the blessings anyway. But if there comes a time that with the blessings that we have, we do the identical thing that Esau would have done, so then Esau's blubbering does mean something. I was born first. You didn't leave anything over for me. What you did was a trick. You don't deserve it any more than I do. And that is the critical definition of the Medrash. The Medrash is not getting emotional and taking in the tears of Esau and saying, boy, I really feel bad for you. I'll get even with the Jew in a couple of thousand years. The, the tears of Esau were honest tears. He knew what those blessings meant. And he felt that he deserved them. So as long as God in heaven can say, you didn't deserve them because I know good and well what you would have done with them and in the hands of Jacob they're going to come to good use, then his tears don't mean anything. But the moment that the Jew walks away with the blessing the way Esau would have, so then Esau has a taina. Esau has an argument. So it's not so much the tear or the argument that Esau comes out of his grave and starts yelling and screaming, but we have to have a way of justifying the blessing. That's the way we receive the blessing. And who knows if the whole way that we receive the blessing wasn't just for this particular element, that we should always be worthy of the blessing. And if we're not worthy of the blessing, it turns against us. Who knows if that's not part of the reason. But this is the definition of the Medrash. Going back to the question why Rivka had both children together was because we can make a mistake in thinking. We can make a mistake in thinking that Yaakov was a born Sadiq and Esav was a born Russia. That's what we can think. I was born like this. I was born like this. Yeah? I couldn't help myself. I was born that way. I have a psychological disorder, a mental disorder, this kind, that thing and I'm excused from anything that I do. I'll eat a hostess cake and I can go and do whatever I want. <laughs> That's what people can think. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu purposely put both these children in one stomach in one birth to say that as diametrically opposed as their natures were, they came from one mama. They came from one birth. They came from one conception. And they both had potentials in different ways, but they both had potentials of reaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're all born different. We're all born different, and every person has different kochos, right? And that message would have been lost. We would have said that there was some kind of uh, birth defect in Esau's birth, and that's why he landed up to be what he was, and he's potter, he's finished. Nothing can be held against him. God purposely put them together to say that no matter what a person's characteristics are and what his particular weaknesses are, they all come from Shoresh Echa. They all come from one source. And if they come from one source, there's a way that the person with whatever characteristic he has, he can reach God with those characteristics. This is understanding it on one level. I'd like to just end off with another interpretation which is similar to the first interpretation. I still have time because I didn't hear the click. (laughs) And it's an interesting definition. It's not in all contradiction to the first definition. It just goes a little bit deeper. (coughs) We know that the book of Bracious is a Sefer Yetzirah. It's a book of creation. We explain that when we talk about creation, we're not talking about the first chapter of the book, we're talking about the entire book of Genesis. Therefore, every single event that we learn about has to fit into a definition of Yitzira, of creation. How, do this, how does this episode fit into that definition? How does it fit in? How does all, everything that's happening here fit into that definition? So let's explain. Let's explain. Adam Arishan, okay? It's another couple of minutes. Adam Arishan was created, first man was created in a way and that he had one spiritual test. He could eat from everything in the garden, from one thing in the garden he couldn't eat. 
Do we understand the test or don't we understand the test? That's not the issue of this evening. But he had a big spiritual test. It wasn't the question of eating a Macintosh apple. Right? There was a big spiritual test involved. He did not pass the test. And he took from something that he shouldn't have taken. That began a trend of people taking where they weren't supposed to take. And for the next ten generations, generation upon generation, it became a spiraling effect until when we came to the tenth generation, the generation of the flood, people were grabbing with both hands and both feet. And if there was somebody in the way, it didn't really matter. And that's what the generation became by the time of the flood. That's what happened. Chet Adam Harishan. We suffer for it in many different ways only because we took up the cue and just continued on that, that particular first act. Then Noah is given the training of not taking, comes out, tries to build a new world, and the world gets messed up again. And the next ten generations from Noah till Avram till Abraham fall into the same kind of traps. Not the same, but a similar kinds of traps. Comes along Avram Avinu, and Avram Avinu says that he wants to create a situation by which humanity, humanity will live up to the level that it was created to live by. That's what Avram wants. And Avram becomes the Ish HaChesed. Yitzchak continues this pattern, and he becomes the Ish HaGvura. Now let's explain this. This is very fascinating. There are two basic ways that a person can worship God. Sur meirah v'asei tov. Stay away from things that destroy you and do good things. We have many mitzvahs that say don't do this and don't do that. And they're not trying to be inhibitive in nature. They're trying to protect some of the most treasured spiritual values that we have. And by doing these things, we lose them. So the Torah says stay away. Sur meirah, stay away from those negative forces. Asetov, on the other hand, has nothing to do with staying away from negative forces, but it means do positive things, to build your spiritual stature by doing positive things. Sur meirav asetov. Avram's approach was asetov. That's what Avram was. His whole approach was do good. Shower good upon people to no end and to no degree, and there has to be some good result. There has to be. If you give, you get. It's impossible. And he was the Asay Tov. Yitzhak, on the other hand, understood that if you're just Asay Tov, Asay Tov and Asay Tov, with no distinctions or with no criteria where it stops and where it applies, it's not going to be good. And therefore, Yitzhak's approach was an opposite approach. Sur Meirah. Be careful for all your potentials and for all the good that you have to give, be careful where it is. Control it. Determine where it's right and where it's wrong. He became the Ish HaGvura. So Avram is the Ish HaChesed, Yitzchak is the Ish HaGvura, one is Asay Tov, do good, and the other one is stay away from negative things. Now, Yitzchak gets married to Rivka, and Yitzchak and Rivka are going to have two children, each one of them was supposed to take up the role of one of these two features. Yaakov was going to take up the feature of Asay Tov, of being the person that just gives and gives and gives. And there's much in our literature that indicates that that's exactly who he was, in Ish HaChesed. Esav, on the other hand, was going to be the person with his personality to be the Ish HaGvura. And he was given all the potentials to be an Ishagvura. Now Yaakov didn't need those potentials of being in Ishagvura. He was born with a very pure and simple kind of neshama. Asay tov, just do good and good and good. Sit and learn and teach people and sit and learn and teach people. And that's it, that's all you have to do. There was no necessity for him to have negative leanings because that's not what he was developing or interested in destroying. Esav, on the other hand, had to introduce the aspect of Sur Meirah. Now, they are on equal footing. The Asay Tov and the Sur Meirah are on equal footing. Esav could have become the same father that Yaakov was. Yaakov with his Asay Tov and Esav with Sur Meirah. The deepest levels of Kedusha 
are not necessarily attained by positive actions. Sometimes the deepest levels of Kedusha are attained by a person making sure to stay away from negative elements. And by staying away from negative elements, God blesses the person with Kedusha. The entire personality of Esav would have evolved as an equal father or greater, the commentaries say, for his being able to control those impulses and go in the opposite direction. Equal footing. The only thing was that he didn't accept that mission. Yitzhak wanted that he should accept that mission and Yitzhak would be as, and Esav would be as great as Yaakov. He didn't accept that mission. He took all the impulses and he used them for self-gratification instead of using them to run the other way and to develop his holiness. What happens? What happens? There's a rule. The Gemara says that if a person doesn't address himself to his purpose and mission, his fellow next to him that does can take his portion of Olam Haba with him. And the commentaries explain what does this mean that he can take the Olam Haba? It's not just the Olam Haba that you take. You take the other person's mission as well. There are a certain amount of missions that have to be accomplished for this world to reach its goals. And every person has a unique mission. If one person does not address that mission, God transfers that mission, chas v'shalom, to another person. And the other person assumes the mission, assumes the potentials, and assumes the rewards for the mission if the mission is accomplished. That is what's happening in this parsha. Yaakov is the big tzaddik. He's sitting and learning. He's the asetov man. He doesn't need any special help. Esav needs the help because Esav has to run away from negative forces. Yitzhak wants to bless Esav. Esav is the guy that needs the help. Yaakov doesn't need the help. Yaakov's sitting and learning. He doesn't need the help. He's an asetov man. The man that needs the help and deserves the help and is going to get the help is Esav. But that's provided that he uses it. Esav did not use it. So, B'Shamayim, in heaven, it was decreed that Yaakov now has to assume the mission of Esav as well. He must assume the mission. If he has to assume the mission, he has to have the blessings. He has to have the, he has to have the special protection that Esav would have had. But he didn't get it. But he didn't get it. He didn't get it because he was just, just a smart wheeler dealer. He got it because he has now assumed that aspect. That is what's happening here. A Yaakov all of a sudden has to become the schemer. He has to become the plotter. He has to be able to fight against Sheker, against falseness, even where on the, uh, on the surface he's going to be accused of a Watergate. Why? Because now he has to assume the mission of fighting with everything that he's got. And you're allowed to fight him with anything that you got. He fools you, you can fool him. You have a perfect right. In fact, the biggest advantage that falseness has in this world is if a person uses it against falseness. And that's what Yaakov had to do. He becomes the fighter. He becomes the person that has to fight against all the negative forces. He has assumed Esav's role and deserving of the brachas. <coughs> so there is a Yitzira that's going on. There is a creation that's going on. The way the thing was set out from the beginning was that Yaakov was going to major and be a professional and a specialist in Asetov and Esav in Surmeirah. And for that, he needed special blessings. He said, I don't need any of these responsibilities or anything. I'd la- rather live a life of self-gratification. Leave me alone. So the determination was made that it must transfer itself to Yaakov. And from that point on, Yaakov lives a life of Yesurim. He has to be able to contend with every negative force in life. Before this episode, where Esav said, to heck with the whole spiritual responsibility, before this entire episode, Yaakov was never going to have a life of Yesurim because he was, that wasn't what he was supposed to do in his life. His life was supposed to be a life where he would be left alone to do as much good as he could. But Esav did not want to assume his responsibility. And because of that, Yaakov had to make up the slack in the Avoda. And from that point on, Yaakov's on the run. He has to remain an observing Jew 
no matter how many negative forces and events happen in his life. What's the point of it all? The point of it all is on the second level. On both levels there's meaning, but on this second level there's a particular meaning. For those of us that feel that we were born in the category of Asay Tov, go ahead and use it. If we feel that we were born with no chesronos, with no imperfections, and we feel that nothing really drives us or schleps us, and I don't know if there's anybody here that feels that way, go ahead and use your Asay Tov. But if you come along with the argument that you were born with negative things, and because you were born with negative things, it's God's own fault, whatever I do. Okay, that's what this parish is saying, that it's not that way. The same way that we have a father for Asay Tov, we were always to have a father for Sur Meirai as well. And he's an equal father and a greater father. And Yaakov assumed both roles. For himself, Yaakov didn't need it. But if somebody else didn't assume that responsibility, Yaakov was going to assume it assume it for himself and for his generations after him. So if a person comes along and says, I have very negative tendencies and there's no holiness in me, tell him that you're a child of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And Yaakov did assume the job of Sur Meirah. And if he assumed it and he was successful at it, you, his child, can also be successful at it. Oh, stop.